Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome. I'm very happy tonight to uh, to be uh, sitting here, really, uh, to learn more about um, Rabbi Shapiro. Um, this is actually part of a, a every so often series that we here at Trisha. Um, the prophet Yeshayahu says, uh, Let your eyes see your teachers. The Talmud understands as an injunction to actually um, see our teachers, even if they're no longer with us, to see our teachers before our eyes, to get to know them, to imagine that they're with us, and to really reflect on and try to experience what it would be um, to actually be a disciple uh, of our teachers, and not just to read their words, but to actually kind of live, live with them, and live out their Torah. Um, none of us uh, in this room, of course, had the privilege to know Rabbi Shapiro, um, but um, tonight we have two people with us who have really, I think, uh, spent a lot of time and a lot of thought and a lot of reflection uh, studying his words and, and getting to know him. And the task tonight uh, before our two scholars is to help us know uh, Rabbi Shapiro and to help us imagine uh, what it would mean uh, to be a disciple of Rabbi Shapiro. Um, Rabbi Shapiro, we'll hear more about him in a minute, but um, he um, had a vision of what it meant um, to um, develop uh, the religious person and what it meant to live in religious community. And we'll be hearing more about that today and have a chance to think about what that means for us uh, nowadays. Um, so uh, before I introduce our two speakers, I wanted to um, say two things. First of all, um, Five minutes after our session is over tonight, uh, we'll be uh, having Mariv and we'll be having two minyanim. We'll have Machitza minyan in that room over there, uh, which you can access through the door around there. And we'll have an egalitarian minyan in here. So uh, we invite everybody to stay and, and help us uh, dive them together in, in community, two communities <laughs> that are one. Um, secondly, I want to thank the people who really helped put this evening together. First of all, John Kelson, who's here someplace. John, where are you? Yes, yeah, so Reverend John Kelson, who uh, really envisioned this series and, and, and worked to put tonight together, so thank you so much. Um, Ariella, Ariella, where are you? Ariella, who always helps get the word out and, and put things together and make sure uh, it happens. And then uh, the rest of the office staff who do everything from filling the water pitchers to everything else that needs to be done to make these things happen. So thanks so much to you guys. Um, our two speakers tonight are um, Dr. Erin uh, Liebsmokler and Reverend Dr. Nehemiah Polin. Uh, Dr. Liev Smokler is Director of Spiritual Development at Yeshivat Maharat, where she teaches Chassidut and Pastoral Torah. She earned her PhD and MA from University of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought, her BA from Harvard, and she studied in Jewish Scholar Circle. Her dissertation is entitled God in the Years of Fury, Theodicy and Anti-Theodicy in the Holocaust Writings of Rabbi Kalonimus Kalman Shapiro. She previously served as assistant literary editor of the New Republic magazine, and her writing has appeared there, as well as in the New York Times Book Review, the Jerusalem Report, and the Jewish Week. So thanks for being with us. Um, and Rabbi Dr. Nehemia Polin is a leading expert in Hasidism and Jewish thought. Um, his books include The Holy Fire, The Teachings of Rabbi Kalonimus Kalman Shapiro, the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto, um, The Rebbe's Daughter, based on his research as a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellow and recipient of a National Jewish Book Award, and Filling Words with Light, Hasidic and Mystical Reflections on Jewish Prayer, written with, written with Lawrence Kushner. Dr. Polin, do you prefer a doctor or a rabbi when we don't say both? Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he holds a doctorate from Boston University, where he studied with and served as a teaching fellow from, uh, for Nobel laureate Elie Wiesel. 
and prior to his career in Jewish academia, he teaches at Hebrew College, in fact. Uh, rabbi Dr. Poland served for 23 years as the congregational rabbi, and from now on you'll be Aaron and Hanya. Thank Thanks you. so much for being with us. Thank you. Yeah. Should I give these out now, or you want to first? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a real honor to be here this evening, uh, both to share some teachings of a greatly admired Rebbe and to do so with a greatly admired teacher. Through his writings, Nechemia Polin has been a teacher to me unbeknownst, unbeknownst to him, um, and one of my first avenues into the depths of the Piazzetzner Rebbe's writings. So I want to say thank you to you and to all of you for, for being here to continue that exploration. Our charge tonight is to think about the Rebbe's perspectives on virtue. What does it mean to be a good person and a good Jew? How can we educate ourselves and our communities toward those ends? But before turning to these particular concerns, I want to begin with a brief biographical sketch. Born in Grzynsk, Poland in 1889, Hieronymus Kalman Shapira was the descendant of several well-known Polish Hasidic Rebbe's including Rabbi Yalimelech of Lugens, the Chose or Seer of Lublin, and the Kozhnitzer Magin. His mother, Hannah Bracha, was a woman also known in the world of Hasidut. His father, Rabbi Yalimelech of Grigens, was the author of the Imre Elimelech and the Divrei Elimelech. He passed away when, when Shapir was only three years old. Young Kalonymus was then taken in and tutored by Rabbi Yerachmiel Moshe Hafstein, the nephew of Rabbi Shapira, a little odd to think about, but it's true, and the great-great-grandson of the Kozhnitzer Magin. At the age of 15, he married Rachel Chaim Miriam Habstein, the daughter of his teacher. She herself was also known to study Torah and to edit his works. In that family, there was also Karliner Hasidut. Together, these two had two children, Elimelech ben Sion and Rachel Yudis. Rabbi Shapira served as the Rebbe in Piazetsno, just outside of Warsaw, hence his name, the Piazetsno Rebbe. There he founded the Das Moshe Yeshiva in 1923 to help energize Hasidism of the time. It became one of the largest Hasidic yeshivot in the Warsaw area in the pre-war period. The Rebbe was known for his unique interest in the spiritual education and moral development of children. He wrote several educational treatises guiding students from their early years and onward on the path toward Hasidic spirituality. Though he penned many manuscripts, only one was actually published in his lifetime. Chobat HaTalmidim, where the student's responsibility was published in 1932 and gained wide circulation in Yeshivot. It was a handbook for the education of a young Jewish soul. The sequel to it, Hachsharat Avrechi, or the Young Men's Preparation, would remain in manuscript. It aimed at the development and channeling of emotions and targeted an audience of young married men. B'nai Machshabatova, which has been translated rather loosely under the title Conscious Community, A Guide to Inner Work, was the third in the educational series. It's an elitist work for those seeking enlightened spiritual fellowship. A few copies of this work were in circulation during Shapira's lifetime, but it was never formally published. Other works include Mevoa Sha'arim, Entrance to the Gates, the last book in the series on education, this one for scholars. Sava Ziruz, Command and Exhort, which was the Rebbe's personal diary. Derech HaMelech, The Way of the King, a series of pre-war sermons. And finally, Eish Kodesh, his wartime sermons. 
When the war erupted in September 1939, the Rebbe's home was within the boundaries of what would become the Warsaw Ghetto in November 1940. His home contained a Beit Midrash and meeting rooms where he offered material and spiritual support to refugees from Piazzetsno. Despite many personal losses very early on in the war, on most Shabbatot and holidays from September 1939 until July of 1942, the Rebbe delivered discourses to his students in Yiddish during Shalashudas, which he wrote down in Hebrew after nightfall. Using only the language of tradition, the stories and the symbols of the Torah, the Talmud, and Kabbalah, and without any explicit references to the Nazi regime, he reflected on the circumstances befalling his community and offered them frameworks to reckon with their potential meaning. These drafshot, buried by the Rebbe in a milk can and discovered after the war in the rubble of the ghetto, would become the Eish Kodesh. This incredible book is the sole extant full-length theological work produced inside of the ghetto during the Holocaust. Deported in the spring of 1943, Shapira was executed in the Trevniki labor camp on November 3rd, 1943. Now, to our particular subject. What does it mean to be a good person or a good Jew and how might we get there? The, P the Piazzetta's corpus is sizable and his concern with these matters spans all of his works, I would argue. So I'd like to focus on two texts to at least open up this conversation. One from B'nai Machshava Tova, and time permitting, one from Eish Kodesh as well. You have them in front of you. The question of what it means to be a good person and what it takes to authentically pursue the spiritual life are questions that I believe are inseparable for the Piazzetta. To be good is to be an intimate, open, honest, deeply felt relationship with God. It's to employ one's entire being, one's mind, one's heart, one's senses, and one's soul in the service of the spiritual. As a man invested not only in education, but also in the practice of pedagogy, the Piazetsner turned these lofty ideals into discrete programs. For tonight, or for now, I want to focus just on one aspect, and I hope we can discuss more as the night unfolds. B'nai Mashavatova, translated as Conscious Communities, I mentioned in one translation, or alternatively, the Society for Positive Mindfulness by others, <coughs> is quite literally a how-to guide. How to become a member of the spiritual elite. As the Hebrew title page before you indicates, we'll turn there in a moment, the work is for those who wish to bind themselves in and through fellowship with others to God. So let's begin just by looking at the title page itself. And then I brought for you just the opening of this work. Can you tell me what time I have until tomorrow? 29? <laughs> All right, so I copied for you both, both the Hebrew. Sure, we're going to change mics. Got it. Oh, I enjoyed the look of this one. We're going to use this one. Do you want a thingy? A thingy? No, I just don't want to get in your way. I'm fine. I'm fine. What a gift. Okay. All right, so um, you have both the Hebrew and the English in front of you. The English translation, I've mentioned now a few times, Conscious Community, a guide to inner work, um, is a, an interesting translation. And a contemporary one. Um, 
Okay, so just the title page alone says the very beginning. On Sheish Lomenu Habertin Sheyu, your team hits Haber Yahad, the Shem Yihu, Kucha Brihu, the Knesset Israel, the Hineni Roshem Bishvilam, the Ezrat Hashem Etzad Barim Habatim. People in the neighborhood, see how it's translated here, with the help of God. This is written for sincere adults. Sincere adults who really want to hit Haber Yahad, the Shem Kucha Brihu, who wants to join. To bind, they want to bind themselves, or they want to become friends with. I think both of those meanings are here. They want to cultivate intimacy with God. Together with their fellow human beings, with their fellow Jews. It is for these people, those who recognize that relationship between intimacy with God and intimacy with people simultaneously. Or said differently, those who recognize that the pathway toward God comes through fellowship with human beings. It is for those individuals that he writes this book. These people, when banded together, will become known as the the conscious community, society for positive mindfulness, those with elevated thoughts. He then quotes the pasuk from Zilim, Translation, only this do I ask of God, and this is what I pray, to gaze at the beauty of God and dwell in his presence. And so it seems just from the very beginning that the pathway toward God that he sets out is one that is simultaneously rooted in community and also demanding of a, a personal work. Shifti, in the singular language, I need to sit before God to do this work. So let's look at what that entails. Just going to read a little bit from the first section called The Goal of Our Fellowship, or Seder Matarat And I want us to think together at the opening when we, of the words, the name Machshavat What is the role of Machshavat? What is the role of thoughts? And how does he use that particular language? What does he mean by it? So as he sets out the goals, he says the following: Matarenu Our goal is no different from the goal of all people, all men, say all people in Israel. Meaning, the desire for God, the thirst for God, the desire to be a friend toward God, he considers to be the very basic seed of the Jewish soul. <clears throat> We want to worship the God of our ancestors. An honest or pure work. A full, integrated, embodied, well, we'll get there in a minute. Every part of our bodies and our souls need to be involved in this pursuit. Every little fiber of our being, both our innards and our outers, both our souls and our bodies, needs to be involved in this pursuit of Kedushah of holiness. And where is that holiness? It's around us always. It's within us and it's surrounding us. As it were. 
He goes on, Aval Avinu Avar Haman Rachem Aleinu Bahir Bilibenu Mitzos Ritzon Badat. God in heaven, our Father, help to help to spark in our hearts. What was that? Awaken in our hearts, yes. The spark and the vidat and the knowledge. It's not okay just to be a slave before God. In so much of our liturgy, we imagine being an Evet Hashem to be the optimal relationship. If only we could cultivate a kind of servitude, an obligation, a serving of the master. And yet this isn't what he's after. Because to him, this kind of servitude represents the following. Raksh Avodato, the Avodah of the Evan, he achar it's placed behind the millstones, which is so very far from the king. Meaning the person who operates in this way experiences God as far. Comparing the person who experiences God in this way, this person experiences no direct sensory experience of God and no pleasure from God either. This person, this Evan, experiences God with a closed mind and a blunted heart. That is not the relationship he's after, which is to say, on the other side of it, what he wishes for and what he strives for on the Neymach Shabbat are after our relationship with God that is close, personal, in this world, I would say. One that experiences God sensorily via our perceptions and our bodies. Also, one that experiences God as pleasurable. And finally, one that requires of us the opposite of a closed mind and a blunted heart, as an open heart, a vulnerable heart, and an open mind. Our ideal, he says, is to be like a child, a child of God. Is to be children of good thought, shall we say. We'll feel our closeness to God in this way. Through our Torah and through our Tzvilah, and just like a child who rushes to see his father or his mother really, after a long time not seeing him, with all the feelings of missing for their parents, this is the kind of feeling we want to cultivate. It's so interesting to imagine, to miss someone means that you already know them, to miss someone means that you've already been attached to them. This is the consciousness that he's cultivating, that he wants us to imagine for ourselves, that our beginning point is a relationship with God. And so to return, right, Shuva, is already the second step. We want to run back into God's arms. Shemitz Agatala because we miss God all the time, the every day and every night. We want to run and literally melt into God and pour ourselves onto the lack of. Here's the part that I want to, I'm running out of time already, just want to draw our attention here. 
The Lord will be loud and will be loud and argish and hit her hit her rotator El Hashem. Meaning that they is if they will It's actually not only through prayer and avoda. I'm going to just not translate that word for now. It's not only through these usual means of Torah and mitzvot, etc., and tefillah that we find this, but rather, Rav Gam Tamit Yeh Machshavotenu Kol Kachbara Chazaka Ushura B'Kedushato. We have to actually find a way to bind our minds, Tamid, always in a pure, clean, and strong way to Kedushat, to holiness. Ajatuchali Tgaber Al Chushenu, such that we can actually overcome our own perceptions. The idea is not only to <coughs> sorry, use our senses to feel what's in the world, to see what we see and, and feel the rain that we feel. We want to cultivate a way that our senses actually submit to the thoughts of our mind. Our perceptions must bend to the orientation that we bring to it. And it is through this, our perceptions that bend toward the mind, it is through this that you'll find, you'll find the Kedusha of God. And not only that, but and it is through this method, really, and we'll talk more about that, is through this method that one will find oneself in paradise. This is the goal of our of our fellowship. Very lofty aspiration here. Um, but what we can see is that friendship, friendship that he imagines, is not an alliance, not just an alliance that grows out of shared pursuit, it's an association with other people. That enables the spiritual pursuit. We see that building a spiritual personality requires a thirst for intimacy, a rootedness in community, a commitment to deep personal work, and a sorry, and a requirement or a commitment rather to a practice that enables the our own perceptions, our own bodies, and our sense experiences to bend toward our, the commitments of our minds. So, I have one other piece that I want to share with you. Maybe I'll hold on to it for, for our next exchange or five times. Oh, I'll keep going. Okay, um, so just one, one final word then about uh, what's written here. It's just body and soul right, have to come together to nourish machshavat haleh, to nourish the heart, to open up an intimate relationship between God, between God and a person like a child and their parent. And we have to possess an open mind and a vulnerable heart to get there. But how? Okay. I want to turn briefly now, and I will try to keep this one brief, um, to a piece from the Age Kodesh, which really is where I spent a mere decade of my life. <laughs> so I have to give you a piece of it. Um, I want to turn briefly there because I think it performs this notion in extremis. The notion of the alignment of head and heart. What is the consequence? What does it look like when one actually performs this? When one actually uses one's sense experiences in the service of one's mind? Um, 
And I think that it, in showing you these pieces, it also demonstrates the continuity between the pre-war and wartime complainings. So the selection that I brought for you um, is from, sorry, it's from Kodesh, 1942, March 14, 1942. And I know you've written on this piece as well. Um, I just want to read just a, really a small little piece of it, which does not do any justice to the uh, depths of this work. Um, and, well, you'll have to trust me that, that this is one highlight. Uh, and this one we can, we can do in English because the translation, I think, is a bit more uh, useful, more direct. So, um, in the, I see that's a little cut off, my apologies. So it's in the middle of page 315. So he writes, regarding the pasuk in Yirmiyahu, my soul weeps in Misterimi. Is there any weeping on the face of the Holy Blessed One? Behold, our Papa said, there is no grief on the face of the Holy Blessed One. As it is written, beauty and splendor before him, strength and rejoicing in his abode. There is no contradiction. One verse refers to the inner chambers, while the other refers to the outer chambers. I'm not going to dwell there, so just work with me. Thus we learn that while in the outer chambers of heaven there is always strength and rejoicing before God, within the inner chambers God weeps in his distress, as it were, over the pain of the Jews. So just for some very broad historical context, it's 1942, things are very bad in the war of uh, The Rebbe has long ago already uh, lost his family, and uh, things are heating up to say the least. And while we spent good check of this book, finding many, many different avenues to process this experience of evil, um, how to think about God in, in the face of that. Um, he is entering, he's entering a new phase here, um, one where his explanations are yielding to a different kind of tone, shall we say, um, and a whole different paradigm as well. But for now, we're just going to focus on his notion of Hester Panim. So as he said, right, for Bamisterim Tifken Afshi, in the My Soul Weeps the Misterim, he defines this, using the Gemara, as in the inner chambers God weeps. Bamisterim Tifken Afshi, who cries in these concealed places? God cries in concealed places. So it is possible, he says, that at a time of Hester Panim, concealment of the divine face, which is to say when God hides God's self within the inner chambers, a Jew may also enter and be alone with God there, each Jew at his own level. Hester Panim, so frequently thought of as the absence of God, the experience of no God, uh, becomes for him an opportunity to experience the depths of God. God's concealment, he said, say differently, says God God cries in God's own deepest place, the inner chambers of God. When we experience our own cries, we can actually commune with God there. He goes on, there within the inner chambers, Torah and worship is revealed to each person who enters. We've already spoken about how the oral Torah was revealed primarily in exile, in Babylon, and how the Holy Zohar was only revealed to Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Rabbi Elazar when they were living in a cave, fleeing the Roman government, afraid for their lives. All good things seem to happen in exile. Bit of an exaggeration. 
but there's tremendous <coughs> spiritual opportunity in places of hardship, in places of Jewish exile. Right? If God is in the Bani Starim, if God is in, if God cries in inner chambers, so too in our inner chambers we can connect differently and deeply with God as well. He goes on, there are times when a person wonders about himself thinking, I'm broken, I'm ready to burst into tears at the moment, and in fact I break down in tears from time to time. How can I possibly learn Torah? What can I do to find the strength not just to learn Torah, but to discover new Torah and Hasidut? Then there are times when a person beats his heart, saying, is it not simply my supercilious heart allowing me to be so stubborn, to learn Torah in the midst of my pain and in the midst of the pain of the Jews whose suffering is so great? And then he answers himself, but I am so broken and cried so much. My whole life is fraught with grief and dejection. He is lost inside his introspective, self-analytical confusion. But as we have said above, it is the holy, blessed one who is crying within the inner chambers. And whoever presses himself close to God through Torah is able to weep there together with God and also to learn Torah with him. This is the difference. The pain and grief he suffers over his own situation alone in isolation can break a person. He may even fall so far that he becomes immobilized by it. But the crying that a person does together with God makes him strong. He cries and takes strength. He is shattered and is then emboldened to study and to worship. There is much to say about this passage on its own terms. Um, but what I want us to see here <coughs> this notion that he has that one can bring one's pain directly to God, that one can experience one's pain as God's own crying, which is to say that one's own sense experience, one's own shattering, as he said, can actually be cast in an entirely new light through a spiritual lens. This, to me, performs the very early notions that he had of a chokhmat of a kind of wisdom of the heart that actually shapes the way the world itself is experienced, granting priority to essentially spiritual commitments and then imposing them on the world such that the world reads back to us with a different flavor, a different tenor. So seen in the light of Bnei Mashabatova, this passage to me testifies to the importance of reframing our perceptions. The work of the Jew when encountering challenge is to tell her story differently, to take it in in a way that affirms one pr one's prior commitments. This does not ask us to blind ourselves to what is around us, but to consciously and continuously choose how we want to engage it. This takes a tremendous amount of spiritual discipline. And like the Chavra of Neymar Shabbatova, it treads on a powerful yearning, even in the face of Hester Panim, to to join intimately with God come what may. For the Rebbe in 1942, this project seems to be more solitary than communal, but the union with God emerges as even more intimate and even more private of his terim in those hidden places. So what does it take to be a good Jew and how does one get there? Still a big question. Yearning for God, communing with God, commitment to community, spiritual discipline, and the will to train one's perceptions in accordance with the wisdom of the heart. These, for the Piazzetta Rebbe, are the cornerstones of an authentic, powerful, sustainable spiritual life. This was as true for him in the 1920s and 30s as it was in 1942, and so it would be today. 